Your listenership is so important to us. We really do hope you're enjoying the show. If you're able to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, it would be enormously helpful in allowing us to reach more people and help them get a good night's sleep. So is following us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any other podcast player that you use. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew. I'm here to calm your mind and help you relax into a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading chapters 52 to 55 of The Stories of Greece by Mary McGregor. In the last chapter, we were regaled of the Battle of Salamis. In tonight's story, we will discover the final fate of Thermistosceles. First, let's make sure we're ready to fall asleep. If you haven't already, find a nice place to be cosy, be it in a chair, in your bed, or elsewhere. And rest your body in whatever way feels most relaxed, sitting up, laying down, eyes open, or eyes closed. We all fall asleep in our own time and in our own way. So while you're on your path to sleep, all you'll need to do is follow the sound of my voice. And now, let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 52 The Battle of Plataea Maradonus stayed with his troops in Thessaly during the winter months, but in the spring of 479 BC, he determined to win Athens from the league which she had formed with the other Greek states, or if he failed to do this, to drive the citizens once again away from their city and occupy it himself. So he sent an ambassador to the Athenians to offer, in the name of Xerxes, not only to repair all the harm the Persians had done to Athens and the country round about the city, but to give them new lands and to treat them as independent allies if they would make a treaty with the great king. The Spartans were afraid that the Athenians would accept so generous an offer, and they knew that alone they could not hope to conquer the large Persian army which Maradonis commanded. So they sent the Athenians to beg them to be true to the League, promising that if they were so, Spartan soldiers would be sent to help them against attacks of the enemy. But the Athenians did not need to be entreated to refuse the offer of the great king, for they loved their city and their liberty. Tell Maradonius, they said to the ambassador whom the Persian general had sent, 
So long as the sun moves in his present course, we will never come to terms with Xerxes. Maridonius marched with his army against Athens. The Spartans, in spite of their promises, sent no troops to defend the city, and the Athenians were forced once again to take refuge at Salamis. Then they reproached the Spartans, and in bitter anger, they declared that if an army was not sent at once to Attica to attack Maridonius, they would be forced to make an alliance with the enemy. Again, the Spartans grew alarmed for their own safety. Without further delay, they sent a force of 5,000 citizens, each attended by seven helots. Other troops soon followed and were all under the command of Pausanias, who was a relation of Leonidas, the hero of Thermopylae. The Persians had reached the province of Boeotia and were encamped on the plain of Plataea, while the Athenians and the Spartans set up their camp on a hill above the enemy. Mesistius, the favourite and most famous officer of the Persians, led his cavalry against the cavalry of the enemy, and soon a fierce conflict was raging. Only after their leader fell wounded from his horse and was slain were the Persians repulsed. The armour of Mesistius could not be pierced by any weapon, but a spear which was thrust into his eye caused his death. In vain the soldiers tried to recover the body of their general. Again and again, they were driven back. Then there was a great mourning throughout the army of the Persians, for all lamented for Mesistius, shaving themselves and their horses and their beasts of burden. And there was a great cry throughout all the host, and the sound of it went through all Boeotia, as for the death of one who next to Maridonius was one of most note among the Persians and with the king. As for the Greeks, after having driven the Persian cavalry from the field, they became much more bold and cheerful, and put the dead body of Mesistus on a car. They drew it along their ranks, and so wonderful was it for its stature and its beauty, that the men left their places and came forward to look upon Masistus. Pausanias was now determined to lead his troops down to the plain. Here he encamped, opposite the Persians, with only the little river Asopus between the two armies. The oracle had foretold that the side which began the attack would be conquered. So day after day passed, neither army daring to move. But although the Persians dared not attack the Greeks, they did them all the harm they could, for they filled up the springs to which the enemy went for water, and cut off several convoys with provisions. Pausanias was in despair when the water supply was stopped, and he was determined to withdraw and take up a position nearer to Plataea, where both food and water would be secure. Discipline had grown slack in the Greek camp, and the retreat, which began at night, was carried out in a disorderly manner. One company set off in haste, 
but did not halt where Portonius had arranged that it should. The Spartans refused to move at all. One of their captains, lifting a rock with both hands and flinging it at the feet of Portonius, cried, Thus do I cast my vote against the council of flying from the strangers. Only when the retreat was nearly ended did the Spartans tardily obey the order to withdraw. This was how it happened that, when morning dawned, the Persians found that the enemy had disappeared, all but the Spartans, whose captain had delayed to follow the orders of Porcinius. When Maradonius caught sight of the loiterers, he ordered his men to set out in pursuit of them, and before the Spartans could get into position, the Persians were upon them. But Porcinius soon learned what was taking place in his rear, and he hastened back with the troops that were with him to aid the disobedient Spartans. The Persians had thrust their shields into the ground to form a rough barrier between them and the Spartans, while they sent shower after shower of arrows upon the loiterers. The Spartans soon tore down the breastwork of shields, and with their swords in their hands, advanced upon the enemy. Maradonius did all he could to encourage his men, but they had no armor to protect them from the blows of the Spartans, and they were forced back towards the river, throwing into confusion those of their own army who were still advancing. In the thick of the battle, Maradonius rode on a white horse, surrounded by ten thousand chosen Persians. He was easily known by his white charger, and many were the spears that were aimed at him by angry Spartans. At length, one smote him so that he fell dead to the ground. Thus, said Herodotus, Mardonius paid the recompense for the murder of Leonidas. No sooner was their leader slain than the Persians fled in utter confusion. All but 40,000 who were led off the field by one of the generals, and these marching north reached the Hellespont and crossed over to Asia in safety. Those who fled from the field took refuge in their camp, where the Spartans attacked them. But the barricades were strong, and the camp was not taken until the Athenians returned and joined in the assault. As the Greeks swarmed into the camp, they slaughtered the enemy without mercy. So severe was the defeat of Palatae that the Persians were utterly crushed. The spoil in the camp was enormous. Gold and silver dishes were there in abundance, rich carpets too, and weapons inlaid with precious stones. Horses, camels, mules were captured in great numbers. It is told that the great king had left his own magnificent war camp for Maradonius to use. When Porcinius saw it, all blazing with gold and silver and embroidered hangings, he commanded the cooks and bakers to make ready for him a banquet, as they had used to do for Maradonius. 
when all was ready, he saw couches and tables of gold and silver, all fairly spread, and a banquet splendidly set forth. And then, marvelling at this magnificence and glory, he charged his own servants, by way of mockery, to prepare a Spartan feast. So the meal was made ready, but it looked not much like the other, and Porcinius laughed, and sending for the generals of the Greeks, pointed to the two banquets, saying, Men of Hellas, I have brought you together that ye may see madness of the Medes, who faring thus sumptuously came to rob us of our sorry food. While the battle of Plataea was being fought, the Greek fleet was lying at Delos, an island in the Aegean Sea. The Persian fleet was near Samos, which is not far from the coast of Africa. At Cape Macale, the Persian land forces were encamped. The Samians were afraid when they saw the Persian army, and begged the Greeks to come to their aid. This they readily agreed to, and sailing to Cape Macale, they landed and attacked and burned the Persian camp. The victory would have been harder to win had not the Ionian Greeks who were with the Persians deserted and fought with those of their own race. Both the victory of Plataea and that of Macale were said to have been gained on the same day in August 479 BC. Bands of Persians still had to be driven from some of the islands of the Aegean and from some of the Greek cities in Asia. But the victory of Macale freed the Ionians from the rule of the great king, ended the Persian war, and laid the foundations of the Athenian Empire. Chapter 53 The Delian League For at least forty years, Sparta was the chief city in Greece, and she was the head of the league which bound the cities of Peloponnesus together. It was her brave king Leonidas who had fallen gloriously at Thermopylae. It was her admirals who had been the chief commanders at Salamis and at Mycale. The decisive victory of Plataea had been won by the Spartan Porcinius. But after the Persian War was ended, the power of Sparta grew less and less, while that of Athens increased by leaps and bounds until it was she who held the first place among all the cities in Greece. One reason for this was that Athens, owing to the foresight of Thermostosceles, owned a well-equipped navy and could therefore rule the islands of the Aegean, which had been wrested from the Persians. Sparta had no navy nor had she any great statesman to tell her that she must become a great sea power if she wished still to hold the chief place among the cities of Greece. Sparta was content to drill her soldiers as she had been taught to do by Lycurgus, and she looked with contempt or with suspicion on what was new or unusual. It was only after Athens had far surpassed her in glory and in empire 
that her ambition was at length aroused, and she determined to win fame for herself by destroying her rival. Of Sparta's efforts to conquer Greece you will hear when I tell you about the Peloponnesian Wars. After the Battle of Plataea, Sparta soon lost the command of the Allied fleet through the folly and treachery of Pausanias. The admiral was sent to drive the Persians from some of the Greek cities in the east. His success at Plataea had made him haughty and proud, and he treated his officers with contempt. He flogged his men for small offences, or made them stand with an anchor on their shoulders. If food or water were scarce, he forbade them to help themselves until his own Spartan troops had been fed. Aristides and another admiral named Simon, who treated their officers with courtesy and their men with kindness, went to Borsonias to beg him to behave more justly. But the Spartan would not listen to the remonstrances of the Athenians. I have no time to hear complaints, was his sorry excuse. When Pausanias succeeded in taking Byzantium, which we now know as Istanbul, his pride and ambition increased, and he determined to play into the hands of the Persian king. So he sent for some of the prisoners, and, setting them free, he bade them carry letters to Xerxes, their king. In these letters he offered, as only a traitor could do, to subdue Sparta and the other states of Greece, and to hold them for the Persian monarch. He asked Xerxes to grant him money to carry on the war, and as a reward for his services, he requested the hand of his daughter. Pausanias hoped in this way to gain his great ambition and become tyrant of all of Greece. Xerxes was pleased with the Spartan's letter, nor did he stay to wonder if so disloyal a citizen would be a faithful ally. He sent a letter to bid the traitor work on night and day to accomplish his purpose, without letting himself be held back by lack of gold or silver, or want of troops, for all should be at his command. When Pausanias held the king's letter in his hand, and saw the king's money at his disposal, he began to behave as though he was already the son-in-law of the great king. He clad himself as a Persian prince, he journeyed from place to place in royal state, attended by Persian guards. The Spartan simplicity in which he had been trained was forgotten, and he lived in as great luxury as did his new friends. Rumours of the strange way in which Pausanias had been behaving soon reached Sparta. When it was found that the rumours were true, Pausanias was ordered to come home and another commander, named Dorsus, was sent to take his place. But before Dorsus reached Byzantium, the fleet had refused to obey Pausanias, and had placed itself under Aristides, the admiral of the Athenian ships. A league, called the Delian League, was then formed, to enable Greece to carry on the war against Persia. It was named the Delian League because its treasures were kept in the Temple of Apollo on the sacred island of Delos. Athens became the head of the League, 
Aristides its leader, and so greatly was he trusted that he was asked to arrange the sum of money or the sum of ships which each city belonging to the League should provide. Most of the Greek cities in the Aegean Islands joined the Delian League, as well as those on the north and east coasts of the Aegean Sea. Those who joined took solemn oaths to be true to the demands of the League, and their oaths were ratified by sinking masses of iron into the sea. Not until these reappeared might the people be set free from the vows which they had taken. Pausanias had now returned to Sparta, where he was thrown into prison, but though there was abundant proof of his foolish conduct, there was none of his treachery, and he was soon set free. The traitor continued to send letters to Xerxes by his slaves, and those who carried them never returned, for Pausanias feared lest they should betray him. One of his slaves noticed that those who carried the letters to the great king never came back. He made up his mind that when his turn came to go to Xerxes, he would find out what was in the letter he carried before he delivered it. So when one day he was bidden to hasten with a letter to the Persian king, he no sooner left the presence of his master than he broke the seal, opened the letter, and found, among other things, an order for his death. This was what he expected, and he at once carried the letter to the ephors. It contained proof of the traitor's guilt, but, so it is told, the ephors wished to hear that Porcinius was guilty from his own lips, so they laid a trap for him. The slave was sent to take refuge in a hut that stood in a sacred grove. Porcinius soon heard of the strange conduct of his slave, and, as the ephors had foreseen, he at once hastened to the hut to demand why his servant had not sped on his master's errand. Two of the ephors were hidden behind the hut and could hear all that Porcinius said to his slave. In his anger, the admiral forgot to be prudent and exclaimed that he meant to subdue Greece and deliver her into the hands of Xerxes. The ephors had heard what they wished. They hastened home and at once ordered the traitor should be seized. But either Porcinius was warned or was filled with sudden foreboding, for he fled to the temple of Athene for sanctuary. It was forbidden to drag a fugitive out of the temple, so the ephors ordered that the door should be built up that he might starve to death. His mother, in bitter anger because her son had wished to betray his country, herself placed the first stone at the door of the temple. When hunger had all but done its work, Pausanias was carried out of the sacred place to breathe his last breath, lest the temple should be polluted by the death of a traitor. Chapter 54 Thermostosceles Deceives the Spartans After the Battle of Plataea, the Athenians brought their wives and children back to the city, which the Persians had again left in ruins. Not only were the temples and the houses burned, but of the city wall scarce a trace was to be found. Thermostosceles encouraged the citizens to rebuild the city, 
and this they did with goodwill. More beautiful temples, better houses, soon sprang up under the eager hands of the citizens. The wall they determined to make so strong and so high that they would be able to defend their city against any attack rather than be compelled again to forsake her. But Sparta was alarmed at her neighbor's industry. She was more than alarmed. She was suspicious and angry. Athens was making herself too strong, the Spartans murmured in ungenerous mood. The wall had risen but a little way from the ground when the Spartans sent to ask the Athenians not to go on with their work. The reason they gave was a selfish one, for they said, if the Persians return and take a strongly walled town so near to Peloponnesus, our cities will not be safe. They then promised to offer shelter to the Athenians, should they again be forced to leave their city, but only on condition that they would stop building a wall around Athens. They even asked the Athenians to help them to destroy the walls that already surrounded the other cities of Greece. The Athenians were in a dilemma. They were determined to finish the wall, yet they dared not anger the Spartans, lest they attacked their city while the wall was still unfinished. In their perplexity, they turned to Thermostosiles, who had before now saved them by craft when open defiance threatened to ruin them. Thermostosiles was not long in solving this difficulty. He said that he would go as an ambassador to Sparta to talk over the matter. Other ambassadors were to follow him only when the walls were nearly complete, and meanwhile men, women, and children all must work day and night so that the wall might grow apace. He at once said to the council that he could do nothing until his fellow ambassadors arrived and he pretended that he expected them every day. He refused to attend the council alone, and when the Spartans grumbled, he assured them that the Athenians were not going on with the wall. He amused them so well with his clever speeches that they forgot a little while to be angry with him. But when day after day passed and still the other ambassadors did not come, the Spartans did not hide their suspicion that they were being deceived. When a rumor reached them that the Athenians had never ceased to build the wall, which was now nearly complete, they were angry indeed, and going to Thermostosiles, they demanded that he should tell them the truth. He still denied that the citizens had been building the wall in his absence, but if they doubted his word, he bade them send ambassadors to Athens, that they might see for themselves whether he was deceiving them or not. So the Spartans sent ambassadors to Athens, and then Thermostosiles bade his colleagues join him, for he knew that now both he and they would be safe. The Spartan ambassadors would be hostages for their lives. The first thing the Spartans saw as they approached Athens was a high, strong wall. Then they knew that they had been deceived, and they sent a messenger to tell their countrymen that Thermostosiles had played them false. 
Themistosceles was no coward. He went into the council and boldly told the Spartans that it was true he had deceived them, so that the walls of Athens might be built before they could interfere. Indignant as the Spartans were, and ashamed of their own folly in being deceived by the crafty Athenian, they dared not harm the ambassadors, lest their own messengers should not return in safety. So they sent them away, and Thermostosceles and his fellows returned in triumph to Athens. Soon after this, the city wall was finished, and Thermostosceles then urged the people to build another great wall around Piraeus. When this was done, Athens had the largest and safest harbour in Greece. The other states now appointed her to be the head of the Allied fleet, and no one was more proud of this than Thermostosceles, for it was he who had first persuaded the Athenians to make themselves into a great sea power. Chapter 55 Thermostosceles is Ostracized For many years, Thermostosceles had been a favourite with the Athenians, but soon after the walls of the city were complete, he began to grow less popular. Perhaps this was his own fault, for he tired the people by boasting continually of the good he had done to the city. It was known, too, that he did not hesitate to take bribes, and the citizens were indignant that he should have grown rich in this dishonourable way. One day, as he was talking in public with Aristides, he said, The chief excellence of a statesman is to be able to prove and frustrate the design of public enemies. Aristides answered, Another very excellent and necessary quality in a statesman is to have clean hands. And those who listened applauded Aristides the just, for they knew well that he had never sold his hands with the gold of his country's foes. In 471 BC, the people determined to ostracize Thermostosceles, so weary had they grown of the claims he had made upon their gratitude. At the time of Porcinius's death, he was living at Argos, which city lies south of Corinth. When the papers of the traitor were read, it was found that Thermostosceles had written to him. There was nothing in his letter to show that he had meant to help Porcinius to betray his country, yet he was accused of treason. When he heard of the charge that was brought against him, he wrote to the council at Athens, I, Thermostosceles, who was born to command and not to serve others, could not sell myself and Greece with me into servitude to the enemy. These proud words only angered the Athenian the more, and the council sent men to arrest him. But Thermostosceles did not wait to be captured. He fled from Greece to Epirus, where he hoped that King Admetus, whom he had once befriended, would shelter him from his foes. Admetus was not at home when the exile reached the palace, so he threw himself upon the mercy of the queen. 
she bade him take her little son in his arms and go and sit by the hearth until her lord returned. Then, when the king arrived, Thermostosiles arose and begged Admetus to protect him while the little prince stretched out suppliant arms to his royal father. This was the most sacred way to proffer a request, and according to the custom of his country, the king was pleased to do as Thermostosiles asked. He refused to give him up to the Athenians, and sent him in safety to the Persian court, where Artaxerxes now reigned. Thermostosiles begged one of the officers to take him to Artaxerxes, saying that he was a Greek who had come to see the king on important matters. If you will promise to prostrate yourself before the monarch, as is the custom in my country, I will do as you wish, answered the Persian. Some Greeks would have refused to prostrate themselves before any king, but it was easy for Thermostosiles to conform to the customs of the country in which he found himself. I that come hither, he said, to increase the power and glory of the king, will not only submit myself to his laws, but will also cause many more to be worshippers and adorers of the king. Who shall we tell him you are? asked the officer for your words signify you to be no ordinary person. No man, replied Thermostosiles, must be informed of this before the king himself. So at length the Athenian was brought into the presence of Artaxerxes, and after having prostrated himself, he stood silent before the king. Who art thou? asked Artaxerxes. O king, answered the exile. I am Thermostosiles the Athenian, driven into banishment by the Greeks. I come with a mind suited to my present calamities, prepared alike for favours and for anger. If you save me, you will save your suppliant. If otherwise, you will destroy an enemy of the Greeks. Artaxerxes liked the courage the exile showed, but he gave him no answer that day. At night, in his sleep, he was heard to cry aloud for joy three times. I have Thermostosiles, the Athenian. In the morning, he commanded his courtiers and captains to assemble in the hall, while the stranger was brought before him. As the Athenian passed close to the captains, one of them whispered to him, You subtle Greek serpent, the king's good genius hath brought thee hither. Thermostosiles thought these words were ominous ones, but to his surprise, the king greeted him kindly. A reward had been offered to whoever should bring the famous Athenian to the court of the great king. This reward Artaxerxes now declared should be given to Thermostosiles himself. The Greek besought the king to grant him a year in which to learn the Persian language. He promised that when he could speak without an interpreter, he would tell Artaxerxes the best way to subdue Greece. 
Artaxerxes not only granted his request, but showed him great kindness, for he gave him three cities and ordered the inhabitants to supply him with bread, meat, wine, and whatever else he might need for himself and his family. In Magnesia, one of these cities, the Athenian lived content for many years, but at length Artaxerxes assembled an army to invade Greece, and he sent for the Greek to come to lead it into his own country. But whatever promises he had made to ensure his own safety, Thermostosceles had never really meant to harm the land he loved so well. So when the messenger of Artaxerxes reached him, the Athenian invited his friend to a feast, and after bidding them farewell, he offered sacrifices to the gods. He then took poison, and soon after died. Artaxerxes respected the Athenian because he had died rather than betray his country, and he ordered his family to be treated with kindness. Thermostosceles was buried without the walls of Magnesia, and the Magnesians erected a statue to him in their marketplace because he had been the saviour of Greece. In 464 BC, three years after the death of Thermostosceles, Aristides died. The Athenians, both rich and poor, mourned for his loss, because his rare justice, his true patriotism, had made him to be loved and honoured by all who knew him.